0: Really good pulpit height, by the way. Well, it is very good to be here tonight. Very thankful to be with you. And we are very excited just to be here and... Um I was telling the Ansels, who I know most of you probably know, who used to be here before they apostatized to our church, but we are very glad that they came over to our side. Uh, They are a great blessing to us, and so we just uh, send uh, greetings from them to you. I know they wanted to come, but their son has two games tomorrow, so they couldn't make it, and um, they were kind of a little disappointed about that, but um, they do uh send their greetings also anchor bible church sends their greetings i told them i said yeah we're going to this massive church and uh, medina to do a marriage conference and uh, the deacon said so like how many is there i said well there's you know about a third as many as our church they said oh So anyways, we are glad to be here, and uh, it's always a pleasure to open God's Word. Let me just give you a little overview of what we're doing, and then we'll kind of jump in for our topic for tonight. We're going to be talking about marriage, obviously, and uh, we're going to be talking about the very basics of marriage. So these are things that uh, some of you probably know, and uh, the messages may be kind of a the ministry of reminding to you. Uh, we'll have some things that maybe you don't know, maybe you haven't heard about, and uh, you're kind of, this is new. Uh, and so uh, I'm sure there'll be some new material also. Uh, tonight, we're going to be starting off with just the foundation. Uh, sometimes I have people come in for marriage counseling, and they, they show up, and uh, they're having issues in their marriage, and so I began to talk to them, and I realized that something huge is missing in their life, and uh, they don't know what it is, but it's pretty obvious to me because they don't know the gospel. They've never really uh, experienced being born again, and they're trying to live the Christian life as an unbeliever. So tonight, we're going to start off by looking at your marriage and the cross, and so that will be our topic for tonight, and just consider how the cross is necessary to have a God-glorifying marriage. If you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know that he flees from the city of destruction. And uh, after he reads the Bible, he's convicted of his sin, and he meets up with a man named Evangelist, and Evangelist says, do you see uh, beyond uh, yonder field to the wicked gate? And not wicked gate, but the wicket gate. And uh, if you were to go to England today, like if you were to go to Cambridge or Oxford, you would see in some of the entrances to the courtyards or some of the big houses, they have this huge gate. And then in that huge gate, they have a little tiny door. And that little tiny door a lot of times is above the ground, maybe about 18 inches. Maybe it's 16 to 18 inches wide. And then the top of it is maybe five feet or five and a half feet, so it's really kind of small, and they made that so that they wouldn't have to open the major gate to let people into, um, into their little courtyard or whatever. It protected the manor or whatever that had this huge gate in it. They were able to keep the huge gate closed, and then they would just open up the wicket gate or the narrow gate, and you basically have to squeeze through. You kind of have to strive to enter. No horses could get through. No army could get through. It was just a little tiny gate. So basically, Bunyan says, do you see that narrow gate beyond yonder field? And that is the path, starts the path to the celestial city. So he leaves with difficulty for his family, thinks he's lost his mind. And he has two traveling companions who decide to go with him, obstinate and pliable, They both turn back when difficulty is encountered along the way, and Christian is then forced to go on alone. He himself falls into the slough of despond and almost drowns, but is rescued by a man named Help. And before Christian can kind of get his bearings and get back on the straight and narrow to that little wicket gate beyond yonder field, he encounters one Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man directs him to Mr. Legality because he says, Mr. Legality is able to take that burden off of your back. Because what was interesting is that when Christians started reading the book, the Bible, this burden began to grow in his back. And the more he read, the larger it became, and he couldn't remove it. And so, he doesn't like carrying it around. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man seems to be honest and sincere. So he takes his advice, leaves the straight and narrow path, and goes to Mount Sinai and tries to relieve his burden by the law and almost falls into a fiery gulf. Thankfully, evangelist shows up and says, what are you doing here? And Christian explains how he took the advice of this worldly wise man and was turned to the law to relieve his burden. And after receiving some pretty serious rebuke by evangelists, he gets back on the narrow way and he runs to the narrow gate as best he can. His burden seems to get larger and larger. The demons are shooting arrows at him as he's trying to squeeze through the narrow gate with this huge burden. And when he finally gets through, he receives the scroll of promise Though uh, on the right path, he still has his burden for a short time, and this is what Bunyan writes. Now, I saw in my dream that the highway that Christian was traveling on was fenced on either side with a high wall, and the wall was called salvation. Up the road, Christian ran with his great burden, but not without great difficulty because of the, the load on his back. He ran as best he could until he came to a small hill upon which stood a cross. And a little below the cross, at the bottom of the hill, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that Christian came to the base of the cross and looked upon it. And his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back. And began to tumble down the hill until they fell into the tomb and I saw them no more. Christian was very glad and laughed. And with merry heart he said, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And he stood still looking and wondering in amazement. For it was very surprising to him that the mere sight of the cross should release his burden. And he looked at that cross until springs of water burst forth from his head and sent waters flowing down his cheeks, end quote. Well, that's what we want to talk about tonight. We want to talk about the cross, because it does no good to have a great marriage on your way to hell. So you always start at the beginning, and the beginning is the cross. And before we consider your marriage and the cross, I want to talk about what we mean by the word cross, or at least what I mean by the word cross in this particular session, the Bible sometimes uses the word cross to describe traveling, like they cross the Jordan, something like that. Other times it is used to describe the wooden instrument of torture that the Romans invented to execute people slowly so that their death was prolonged and as painful as possible, but neither of those definitions are the definition we are after. The Apostle Paul, knowing the significance of what happened to Jesus when he was crucified on the cross, uses the word cross as a synonym for the gospel. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 and 18, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So in verse 17, Paul uses the word gospel and the cross interchangeably. And in verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is the definite article, the only power of God that can save sinners. In Galatians 5.11, Paul speaks of the cross as being a stumbling block. In Galatians 6.12, he speaks of being persecuted for the sake of the cross. And in verse 14, he says that he boasts in the cross. In Ephesians 2.16, he says the cross has reconciled both Gentile and Jew. And in Philippians 3.18, he speaks of his the enemies of the cross. And in Colossians 1.20, he explains how we have peace with God through the blood of the cross. And so Paul often uses cross as a synonym for the gospel, the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, and that anybody who believes in him repents of their sins and places their faith in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you have studied the book of Ephesians, you know that the first three chapters address the riches we have in Christ because of the cross. And we learn after we the believer's riches uh, in those first three chapters, the last three chapters, he talks about the believer's walk. As a matter of fact, over and over again, he says walk, 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 all the way through. He keeps mentioning our walk, how we are to live because of who we are in Christ. And... Uh, at the latter half of chapter 5 and the beginning of 6, Paul begins to look at a multiplicity of relationships. Um, he talks about husbands and wives, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. And so Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, is really the most comprehensive text on marriage found anywhere in the Bible. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to take one little doctrinal nuance of this whole text, and we're just going to blow it out tonight. That's what we're going to do. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss the cross in relationship to your marriage. So look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and follow along as I read. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into our text. Father, we come before you tonight wanting to have clarity about the cross. We have just read the most significant text in the New Testament on marriage that mentions Jesus giving himself up as a model for husbands to give themselves up for their wives. Father, we want to know about the cross. We want to understand the cross. We want to make sure that our marriages begin at the cross. So that we know we have all the resources we need in Christ to have marriages that bring you glory and that give us blessing. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do from our text we just read there, I want to give you four ways the cross of Christ intersects with marriage so you can have a marriage that is blessed by God, is a blessing to you, is a blessing to your children, is a blessing to others, and points people to Jesus Christ who died on the cross. So the first, some general observations. Notice verses 23 and 24. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, I'm not going to focus on submission, but I do want to make a simple observation. The headship of a husband and the submission of the wife is patterned after Christ the head of his bride, the church, and the church's submission to her head, Christ. The fact that Christ has a church and that the church is in submission to Christ indicates that somehow the church was formed. And that, secondly, Christ is Lord or Master over his church, and that, thirdly, believers are responsible to submit to the Master and Lord of the church. We are not told, at least in these two verses, how Christ formed his church, but the text is just getting started. Thankfully, verse 25 tells us, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you say, well, what does that mean? Gave himself up. Gave himself up to die on the cross. We all know, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him to what? To die for our sins on the cross. And so, Right off the bat here, in verse 25, we see that though the church is alluded to in verses 23 and 24, it tells us that a husband's love for his wife is to parallel Christ's love for his bride, the church, and he gave himself up even to death for his church. And of course, it was motivated by love. Christ loved his bride the church. Christ's sacrificial love is a model, an example, the pattern of how husbands are to love their wives. Basically this, guys, you could take every marriage book that's ever been written and crush it down into verse 25. I mean, if you love your wife like Christ loved his bride, the church, you'd be good. I mean, every marriage book in the world (laughs) that's worth reading can be distilled down into that verse. I mean, that's it. That's super concentrate of how to love your wife. Then in verses 26 through 30, Paul explains how the husband is to love his wife in a multiplicity of ways. A sacrificial love for his wife um, uh, should have as his primary goal the spiritual growth of his wife. He should encourage his wife in the word and by whatever means are at his disposal, maybe, yeah, go to this Bible study. Let me get you this books you need. Um, let me get you some Bible software. Do whatever you can to encourage your wife's spiritual growth. Talking about the word, maybe praying together, praying through scripture, talking about what you read in your quiet time, whatever it takes, you're trying to encourage your wife to sanctify her. Why? Because Christ does that for his bride, the church. In verse 31, it begins for this reason, telling us that the very purpose of marriage is to mirror, reflect Christ's loving sacrifice and purpose and goals for his bride, the church, which is to make the church holy. In Genesis 2:24 is then quoted in the rest of verse 31, which gives God's blueprint for marriage, a text for Sunday morning, Lord Willing. But we might summarize our text by saying, "As husbands lead, serve, provide and protect their wives, helping them grow in godliness, and as wives willfully." submit to, encourage, support, respect their husband's leadership, their marriage becomes a living example of how Jesus Christ loves his bride, the church. And though Paul is clearly talking about marriage in this text, it is equally clear he is comparing marriage to Christ's relationship to the church. This is made clear in verse 32, where Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Both marriage and Christ's love for the church are being discussed simultaneously. And the latter, Christ's love for his church, is to be displayed by the former, a husband's love for his wife, which means marriage, your marriage, is designed to declare to the world how Christ loves the church. And that's that's pretty, pretty major. Now, how about your marriage? What does your marriage tell the world about how Jesus loves the church? That is the big question. God's instructions for husbands and wives are not followed. Then what happens? Pain, misery, fighting, selfishness, divorce. The cross of Christ is not declared in the marriage to those looking on, and God is not glorified. Which brings us to our first major point. What in the world happened at the cross? What in the world happened at the cross? The cross of Jesus Christ is really the intersection of all creation, the ultimate demonstration of God's love for mankind. His greatest Act of humility and power. What happened at the cross is really kind of like the spiritual big bang. (laughs) And instead of just exploding havoc and destruction and chaos, it hurled grace and mercy and love and compassion and salvation throughout the world to this very day. Calvary's cross is really the epicenter where grace exploded to the world of men. And ever since Satan rebelled and Adam and Eve sinned, God's holy justice and wrath have been eager to punish all sin. Jesus even made a pretty scary statement when he said, you know, that he longed for God's wrath to be kindled. Think about that. The loving Savior. Oh, how I long to see it happen. Why? Because he's just. Is he loving? Yes, but he's also just. And yet, though the wrath of God has built up like a dam. What's holding it back is God's mercy. God's mercy is like a huge wall that's holding back God's omnipotent fury, giving sinners the undeserved opportunity to repent and escape the judgment of God. Because God is infinitely holy and just, he can't overlook even the tiniest of sins. And oh, it may seem to us that God does overlook sin. And we might think that because we often sin and there's no apparent consequences, it often appears to the ungodly even, that they're getting away with all kinds of sin and no judgment has come yet. And they think, well, yeah, the judgment of God is just a bugaboo. But listen, just because God is long-suffering doesn't mean He's ever suffering. And one day His mercy towards the unrepentant will come to an end. Many on death row have protracted trials and long stints in prison and reprieves to delay their execution. But in the end, they still die. Justice is served. Judgment comes, maybe slowly, but eventually. And then they are executed. And so it is with God. Yes, he gives grace. Yes, he gives mercy and many undeserved reprieves to evil men, but that is no forgiveness. His holy justice remains. And know this every sin that you and I ever commit will receive the full judgment it deserves. Every sin. The full penalty will be paid for every one of your sins. And hear me when I say this that even one little sin, one small infraction, carries with it an infinite punishment. A lot of people have a problem with that. You know, I mean. You know, I've only done these little things, I've never killed anybody, and I'm not an axe murderer, and you know, I mean, how could just one little sin carry with it just you know this eternity of punishment? It just seems like, whoa, it just seems like the punishment is far greater than a crime. Well, that's because you don't understand that every sin is an infinite, infinite offense to an infinite holy God. The tiniest infraction brings with it ponderous judgment of eternal destruction in the lake of fire. The lake of fire cannot burn long enough to consume our sin and guilt and therefore the guilty suffer day and night forever and ever. God's justice demands full and complete payment of every sin. And this is why every person is in peril. Why every person is in need of salvation. Rescue from the just judgment of a holy God who must punish him. He has to do it. Or he wouldn't be a good God. God's the judge. And he has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. He will come to this world to judge the world of men in perfect righteousness. This is the very bad news for sinners. But unbelievers should be thankful that the judge hasn't returned yet, and however, he will return to execute the wicked and establish righteousness on earth. And this is the good news for believers, but bad news for those who will not repent. Paul reminds us of this in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine when he writes. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not, know not, do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his, the glory of his power. This is why people need saved by the cross, the gospel, and what they need rescued from. Jesus is returning again to this earth to judge those who do not know him. This is why John the Baptist came preaching, flee from the wrath to come. Why did he say that? Because people need to flee from the wrath to come. But the very invitation to flee implies something, doesn't it? What does it imply? That there is a way of escape. That there is a merciful way of escape provided for those who are willing to flee there. And what way of escape was made on the cross? Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life... Offered himself up as a perfect substitute for sinners. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He is the only human sacrifice provided by God so that unworthy sinners can be rescued. Jesus lived in a sin-cursed world. He was persecuted. He was falsely tried. He was beaten, scourged, and mocked, and crucified for sinners, for us, for all of us, on the cross. Jesus bore the sins of the world, and at that very moment, When the Father was unleashing His omnipotent fury on His only begotten Son. When Jesus was at His weakest after being beaten and scourged and kept up all night and hung on a tree with nails pounded through His hands and feet. When the sins of the world were crushing the life out of him. Then the father turned his back on his own son, causing a fracture in the Trinitarian relationship. That perfect communion, which the father had always had with the son from all the eternity, was interrupted at the worst possible Moment, and it made Jesus cry out, if you remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it was finished. It was done. Jesus gave up his spirit and died and offered perfect atonement, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect human for unperfect humans. You can just imagine Some ruthless, violent, murderous criminal who evades the police for many years and keeps committing more and more murders and more and more crimes and atrocities... He's he's They catch him on tape. They know it's him. They know what he looks like. They've got him red-handed. There's DNA. There's everything. There's no doubt he's guilty. He just needs to be caught and be tried, and the evidence will show that he is guilty. And his day in court comes, and he is convicted of as many wicked deeds, and he is pronounced guilty beyond all attestation, and the judge passes the death sentence upon him, and then the judge stands up. And he takes off his black robe. And people are thinking, what's going on here? This is unusual. And he stands up. And after he takes off his robe, he declares to the court that he wishes to pay the penalty and die in the place of the criminal. And there's a murmuring in the court. And the judge says, life for life. I will give my life so that justice can be served and this base, guilty, wretched sinner can go free. This is what Christ did for us, but in a perfect way. Not like a sinful judge giving his life for another sinner, but a perfect human sacrifice, the very Son of God, the sinless Son of God, giving His life willingly for imperfect sinners. He is the just judge who sacrificed Himself so that the guilty could go free. Romans chapter 5 verses 7 through 11 explain some phrases here. It says, Jesus did this, while we were helpless... When we were ungodly, while you were sinners, and while we were enemies, Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus didn't wait until you got your act together, straightened out your life, cleaned up your your business. No, when you were bad, Very bad, hostile to him, engaged in evil deeds. That is when Jesus died the death you should have died in order that you, the guilty party, might live the life that he lives. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect, sufficient to atone for the entire sins of the world. Sufficient to satisfy the infinitely holy justice of God. Sufficient enough for you. Sufficient enough for me. Sufficient enough for billions of others. Jesus the judge first became Jesus the Lamb of God and died to rescue the guilty from hell. But how? How, you might be wondering, do you prepare to meet this judge? How do you get rescued? Like, how do you acquire the rescue? That's our second point. You must look to the cross. I love how Bunyan puts it. Here's Christian. He's going along. He's got this huge burden. He's tried to take it off and he's tried to take it off and it keeps getting bigger the more he reads the Bible because the more he sees his sin, he can't take it off himself and he's surprised because all he needs to do is look to the cross and his burden falls off. He didn't have to lift the finger. Looking at the cross, Bunyan says, Release this is Christian's burden and it falls off and rolls in the tomb, is never seen again. Do you wish to have a marriage for the glory of God? Do you wish to have a marriage full of joy and peace and blessing? Husbands, do you desire to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Do you wish to cherish your wife and nurture her and honor her like God instructs you? Do you desire to live with your wife in an understanding way as with a weaker, weaker vessel, to encourage her in her walk in obedience to God? Wives, do you wish to love and respect your husbands to uh, support his leadership? as the Lord Jesus Christ instructs you, do you want to give God glory in your marriage? Then you must, in the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, be born again. You can't endure. You can't even imagine enduring eternity in the lake of fire, which is the first reason why we must look to the cross and be converted by grace, because judgment is coming. A second reason you must look to the cross, because if you do not, you will not have the Holy Spirit. You will not have God's grace working in your life. You will not have the divine resources that God gives to every believer to live out His Word and to be the husband God wants you to be or the wife He wants you to be. You will be ever frustrated trying to be the good husband, the good wife, if you don't know the Lord because you're going to have a gun with no ammo. Third reason you must look to the cross is that your efforts will be in vain even if you do succeed to have a good marriage, even if you succeed in the flesh to be moral and civil and kind to your wife and buy her flowers every week and, and whisper sweet nothings in her ear every night, I don't know, you know, whatever you think is going to be like really awesome in the marriage, you will still be at enmity with God, at war with God, you will still be unreconciled to God, and you will never give God glory to anyone In anything you do until you're first reconciled to God through the cross. Your spouse and children may be very happy. You may have people marvel at the home you have built and managed and cared for. But on judgment day, you will discover your life is built on the sand, not the rock. All your good, moral, civil deeds will be washed away in the flood of Christ's omnipotent fury when He judges the living and the dead. And believe me, there is no virtue in in having a good marriage on your way to hell. And this is why you must lay hold of the cross. And exactly how do you do that? How do you do that? It's our third point. How do you lay hold of the cross? The world tells us To look to ourselves, to look to the money, to look to our friends, to look to the learned doctors and scientists of the world. The world tells us to trust the government, to trust your works, to trust your morality, to trust your heart. But the Bible says he who trusts in mankind is cursed, and he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. There are many in the world, religious or not, who live their lives trusting in themselves, trusting in false gods, trusting in false hope, and they do it brazenly and sincerely. They use their life and gifts and skills and strengths to attach um, uh, their their false religions and false ideas to to give them hope. And they know God exists, for the Word of God says that all men know God exists. It's just that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's not that they don't believe in God. It's that they won't believe in God. Because it scares them. Because they fear judgment. Because they want to sin without the consequences uh, 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 ringing in their ear. You know, they they don't want a guilty conscience screaming at them while they sin. So they deny God. They deny judgment. They deny hell. But that doesn't make it go away. I mean, you can imagine jumping off a cliff and saying, Well, I'm not going to hit the jagged rocks below. Well, it may make you feel comfortable on the way down, but you're still going to hit. When the winds of death blow, and they are faced with the unavoidable fact that they will soon die, atheism and agnosticism often melts away into terror of God. Their wishbone philosophies conjured up self-delusions do not comfort them in the face of death, nor do their self-delusions give them hope. The French god-hater Voltaire was one of the great writers of his time and spent his life trying to destroy Christianity. He referred to Christ as the cursed wretch. He once boasted, quote, In 20 years, Christianity will be more, no more. My single pen shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. End quote. And after his death, the nurse who attended Voltaire said, quote, For all the wealth in Europe, I would never see another infidel die. End quote. And the doctor who attended Voltaire, when he died, said these were his last words. This is a guy who denied God and Christ all of his life. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ! Oh Jesus Christ! And he died. And then you know what they did with this house? They printed Bibles in it. Those were the atheist's last words. Answer me now, in the silence of your heart. Have you looked to Christ alone from the just wrath that your sins have earned for you or not? I'm not asking if you're religious. I mean, you're here, aren't you? I'm not asking if you're a faithful church attender or if you give to the Lord, or if you serve, or if you have Bible knowledge. I am asking you before God who sees into your innermost being, have you looked to the cross of Christ alone for deliverance from your sins? Have you repented of your sins and looked in faith to Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected from the dead to save you? The Bible says there will be many religious people, who know about Jesus, who go to church, who profess Jesus as Lord and do good works in his name, and then Jesus declares to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They knew about Jesus. They did things for Jesus. They're in the church, but they perish because they're deluded about the true condition of their souls. Could that be you? Some people trust in their creed, their knowledge, their profession, their pastor's assurance that they are saved, a prayer, an altar call, but not in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Isaiah 45 verse 22 says, Turn or look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is the text that somebody who couldn't preach preached to Charles Spurgeon and he came to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said he looked right at him when he turned out of the weather to go into this little Methodist church he said some guy who couldn't preach was there preaching and he called out to him and said young man have you looked to Christ and he just said you don't need to do anything just look just look and he just kept telling him to look and Spurgeon looked and was saved You must look to the cross alone for salvation if you wish to have the burden of your sin fall off your back. Knowing about the cross, knowing who Jesus is, knowing what He accomplishes is necessary, but it's not enough. Demons know those things. You yourself must look in faith, trusting in Jesus alone to save you. You know, if you buy a ticket to fly someplace you've always wanted to visit, how do you get to that destination? Well, you must take the ticket and put it to use. If you had a pill that could, could cure any disease and you contracted terminal, terminal cancer, the pill could heal you, but you have to take the medicine. Jesus is the medicine, but you have to receive him. As many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. The word of God says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You must believe. The word of God commands all people everywhere to repent. You must repent. Have a change of mind that results in a change of direction to turn away from whatever you're living for, to turn to Christ in faith. The word of God says to receive him. You must receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Word of God says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess Jesus is Lord. You must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. As the old hymn says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And I ask you before God... Have you looked to Jesus Christ in faith? Have you been born again? Or are you deluded about the true spiritual condition of your soul? Is the wrath of a holy God still abiding on you? Or is it passed over you and there's no longer any condemnation because you are safe in Christ? Do you love Christ? Are you taking up your cross daily to follow Christ? Are you born again? And I'm not asking you if you profess to be a Christian. Or if you do good works in Jesus' name, or if you prayed the sinner's prayer, made a decision for Christ, or went to an altar call, or raised your hand at a revival meeting, or signed your name in a card. I want to know if you've laid hold of the cross of Christ by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Christ alone to save you. That's what I'm asking. And if you're out there and you're thinking, man, that is not me, that is not me. Well, then do it now. Right now. Cry out to God right now. You say, well, Why? Why is that so critical? I think it's pretty obvious. All eternity is weighed in the balance. But how does it relate to marriage? Our fourth point, your marriage is signed to the cross. If you understand what happened at the cross, why you must look to the cross, and if you have laid hold of the cross by faith, Your marriage has the potential of being a sign that points other people to the cross. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 5.32 where Paul, speaking of marriage, says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What mystery? The mystery that your marriage is a living demonstration, a billboard, a sign on a post, Telling the world something. It may be telling the world that Christian marriage is no different than pagan marriage. But your marriage should point people to the cross. Unbelievers are watching you, they are looking to see if your marriage is full of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And if they see, though, in your marriage selfishness and bickering and arguing and outbursts of anger and strife and factions and misery that mock the cross, then they're going to basically be giving them stones to throw at God and throw at Christ and blaspheme His fair name. If unbelievers don't see something markedly different in your marriage from theirs, why would they want to become a Christian? Why deny all the sinful pleasures of the world if Christianity makes no difference in your marriage? When your marriage isn't live for the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you give unbelievers ammo to fire at God. And if your marriage isn't a billboard pointing to the cross... It isn't what God designed your marriage to be. Let me just give you this little odd example. And this is, again, something interesting. And it's not something you necessarily need to do, but it illustrates the point. One of the things I determined to do when I was first married is open the door for my wife. I actually did it before we were married. So some 35 years ago. And... We'd get in the car, Lisa would stand there, I'd walk around, open the door, and then when we'd pop, i turn up the key, i get out my door, i walk around to her side, open the door. It's, it's kind of a problem because when she goes out with her girlfriends and she's in the pastor's seat, <laughs> they get out and they walk away and she finds herself sitting in the car afraid to touch the, the doorknob. And I train my boys to do the same thing um, for their mother and sister and any other women as well. Get the door, show some chivalry. And one professing Christian man who was an unbeliever in our church saw me open the door for my wife and told his wife in a scoffing tone, Oh, look, there's Jack opening the door for his wife. Let's keep watching and see how long this lasts. He told me later, after he was converted to Christ, that every week he watched... And his wife watched. And he said, let's see if he does it. And every week, I did. And he became more and more convicted. And eventually, he repented of his sins, (laughs) gave his life to Christ, and started opening the door for his wife. Now, I'm not advocating door opening. That's not the point. The point is this. That people are watching you. They're watching how you interact at home. You know, as you're standing around by the coffee. When things are stressy. Your children are watching. Your family relations are watching. And your marriage is a billboard. And it's advertising something to people who are watching. What does the billboard of your marriage say it should be saying look to the cross that's what it should be saying and we're going to be looking at how that actually works and so what have we covered here one know what happened at the cross Jesus bore our sins in his body in the tree Know why you must look to the cross, because if you don't, you'll never have the resources to have a marriage lived out for the glory of God. Know how to appropriate what happened at the cross. Look to the cross in faith. Repent, believe, believe, receive, whatever. Why? So that the billboard of your marriage can point other people to the cross. Because that's why God designed marriage the way he did to reflect to the world how Christ loves his bride, the church, and both heaven and our earth through the way you love each other in your marriage. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful, Lord, just for what we've seen there. That... Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we have seen that though Paul is talking about marriage, he is also talking about Christ and the church. And... Our marriages are to reflect the very love, the pattern that Christ has set for us by loving his bride, the church, by giving himself up for her. And it all starts, Lord, with us knowing what the cross is, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again, receiving the Holy Spirit and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ so that we can learn to have marriages that give you glory. This is what we want, Lord. We are weak. We are feeble. We are sinful through and through. But your grace is sufficient for us. May we seek your face. May we receive your Son. And may we live lives that show the world how Christ loves his bride, the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.